0: Section 22 of The Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Meg Huskin. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 14, Part 2. Euphrosyne Duquesne. It was the eve of the Fourth Crusade, and the knights of the West were gathering for a fresh effort to break the power of the Turk, and to gather loot by the way. To these noble buccaneers, the Emperor Philip introduced the young Alexis, and proposed that they should restore him and his father to their throne. Neither East nor West attracts our sympathy for a moment the angeli brothers were squabbling for the right to indulge their sordid tastes on an imperial scale and the younger alexis had no more serious ideal the venetians who had an important voice in the matter sought their own profit and a discharge of their debts and there can be little doubt that the western knights as a body were allured by the vague hope of plundering in one way or another the richest and most splendid city in Europe. An infamous bargain was struck. The princes of Western chivalry did not hesitate to accept, from the frivolous and irresponsible youth, a promise of the payment of 200,000 silver marks, a year's supply of provisions to their troops, and other preposterous rewards for dethroning Alexis even the papacy had its share in the sordid bargain the greek church was to be forced to submit to the vatican in the month of april 1203 the fourth crusade set sail in one hundred and seventy large vessels and some smaller ships for constantinople alexis awoke from his dreams to find that a score of worn triremes was all the navy he possessed and he must resign himself to meet a siege of his capital. The vivid story of the fall of Constantinople cannot be told here. Toward the end of June the Crusaders landed near Chalcedon, and gazed with covetous eyes, most of them for the first time, at the innumerable spires of churches, schismatical churches and therefore prey, that rose above the clustered houses, the princely villas, that shone between the cypresses in the wealthier suburbs and the bronze roofs and marble walls of the superb palaces which glittered in the sun among the vast imperial gardens on either side of the sea of marmora when the news of their sailing had reached alexis he had made it a table joke now he and his trembled within the walls of their capital By the middle of July the Crusaders were encamped outside the land walls. The Venetians lay beneath the walls which girt the shores, and the great assault began. Alexis, from a tower of the Blackerney Palace, saw the double-edged axes of the brave English Varangians scatter the Germans and Italians. But he learned that the Venetians had broken in, packing his treasures and his money he took ship at dawn of the following day with his daughter irene and fled to thrace where a retreat had been prudently prepared for such an emergency george Acropolites, whose chronicle now opens says he took euphrosyne but nicotas an eyewitness more correctly observes that the imperial egoist deserted his wife his city and his empire In their anger at the flight of Alexis, the people now swept aside Euphrosyne and her relatives and turned to Isaac, for whom the eunuch treasurer secured the Varangians. He was brought to the palace and proclaimed, and Euphrosyne, her discredited daughter Eudokia, and other relatives were put in confinement. The Latins were informed that the object of their expedition had been attained, and when Isaac had ratified the preposterous contract signed by his son, the young Alexis rode proudly into the city between Baldwin of Flanders, almost the one noble of the crusading party, and the blind but astute and formidable Doge of Venice. One of the Latin knights, Villehardouin, has left us a vivid narrative of the conquest and enlightened us as to the fate of some of the imperial women we have encountered when the latins entered the Blackerney palace they found the eyeless monarch sitting on his golden throne in robes quote, like of which you would see in vain throughout the world quote. by his side sat the quote, most fair lady end quote, maria who we may therefore conclude had faithfully clung to her husband in his blindness and humiliation, and amongst the crowd of fine ladies, superbly dressed and glittering with jewels, who stood about the throne, was Agnes, or Anna, the beautiful and pathetic widow of the Emperor Alexis, the Emperor Adronicus, and the would-be Emperor Branus. She was still only thirty years old, her presence in the palace suggests that she had accepted some office in it under isaac and maria but the joy and confidence of the returning throng were doomed to be speedily overcast the end was merely postponed for a month or two the empire had in its most solemn crisis received a worthless and despicable pair of rulers and the latins pressed for their pound of flesh isaac blind gouty and weak-minded spent his days among the monks and astrologers who while they devoured the choicest dishes that the palace could afford assured him that he had entered upon a long and glorious reign that his gout would quickly disappear and that his eyes would be miraculously restored to their arid sockets the younger alexis drank and gambled with the experienced knights of the fourth crusade when the leaders of the crusade pressed for the payment of their reward all the wealth of euphrosyne and her relatives was confiscated alexis had little left to seize the jewels and plate of the palaces were pledged even the precious reliquaries of the churches and monasteries and the great silver lamps of saint sophia were appropriated yet the jaws of the west still stood wide open and the latin troops lingered and demanded food and drink the fugitive alexis had in the meantime raised an army in thrace and the citizens of constantinople were embittered and disaffected in august a quarrel with some of baldwin's supporters had led to a conflagration which it being the height of summer had burned for two days and destroyed nearly half the city the clergy and people met in the cathedral to appoint a new emperor but though some undistinguished officer afterwards accepted the title from the mob no serious aspirant dare take the crown in face of the hostile latins isaac died in the midst of the turmoil and the young empress maria lost her crown almost as soon as she had received it we shall see presently that she found consolation among the crusaders but it is necessary first to follow the adventurous fortune of euphrosyne and her daughter the young alexis distracted and feeble as ever proposed to leave the city and join the westerners in their camp without the walls as he prepared for flight there came to him a fiery and ambitious young officer who felt that the time was opportune for laying his own hand on the sacred crown. Alexis Ducas Mertsouflus. His last name, or nickname, was due to the fact that he had a peculiar connection of the bushy eyebrows, which stood out over his crafty eyes, was one of the party in the city who, to the applause of the crowd, urged direct war upon the Latins, and his popularity emboldened him to remove Alexis and ally himself with Euphrosyne. By a liberal outlay of money, he secured the Varangian guards, and then he approached Alexis, and whispered to him that his leaning to the Latins had exasperated the citizens. When Alexis trembled, the adventurer offered to lodge him in a secure retreat, until the rage of the people should have calmed. It is hardly necessary to add that the young emperor was conducted to one of the dungeons of the palace, where his egregious folly was presently ended with a bowstring. Euphrosyne and her daughter were now delivered from their confinement and restored to the palace, and, as Mertzopheles had the characteristic looseness of his age in regard to conjugal matters, he had already discarded two wives, he soon sought and obtained the affection of eudokia the contemporary courtier and writer Nikitas says that eudokia was merely his mistress but others say that he married eudokia and it is difficult as the sequel will show to determine the point probably he did after a time marry euphrosyne's daughter and he then set to work to defend the city against the crusaders the issue is one of the great pages of history but its details do not concern us on the ninth of april the latins moved their formidable rams and catapults and towers against the walls and the venetians drew up their vessels along the golden horn three days later after a furious assault amid showers of mighty stones and the blaze of burning houses the heroes of the cross burst into the city and began that historic ravage which puts them for all time far below the moral level of the Turks they had set out to combat. Mertziflis, finding his troops discouraged, had retired to the Bucolian palace where Euphrosyne and Eudokia awaited the issue. He had lost, he said, and from the palace quay, where the stone lion and bull, which gave the place its name, had witnessed so many flights, they took ship and sped in the direction of Thrace. The ex-emperor Alexis would surely welcome his wife and daughter, and he would feel little tenderness in regard to the murder of his perfidious nephew. Mertziflis arrived in confidence at the ex-emperor's new home, and was received in apparent friendliness. For some reason, however, which is not very clear, Alexis concealed under his friendly appearance a deadly and murderous hatred of the adventurer. It seems to me that if a marriage had really taken place between Eudokia and Mertziflis, Alexis regarded it as invalid. He ordered a bath to be prepared for his daughter and Mertziflis, and when the young officer had entered it, sent his servants to put out his eyes eudokia we are told stood at the door angrily upbraiding her father and he turned upon her with language which leaves little doubt as to her character i may add that the blind adventurer was captured by the latins as he wandered miserably about the provinces he was taken to constantinople and flung from the top of one of the loftiest columns in one of the public squares of the city In order to follow the further fortunes of our ex empresses, we must turn back for a moment to Constantinople. After they had allowed their soldiers to loot and rape with impunity, to perpetrate, with the aid of their camp followers and prostitutes, a veritable orgy of desecration in the most sacred shrine of the Greeks, for several days the leaders of the crusade met to divide the spoil. Twelve electors, chosen from amongst themselves, were in future to appoint the Latin emperor of Constantinople, and its territories were to be distributed among his feudal supporters and the Venetians. Baldwin of Flanders was chosen to be the first emperor of the new series. His most serious competitor was the commander of the army, Boniface, Marquis of Montferrat, who had occupied the Bucolian palace but the shrewd doge of venice had preferred to set on the throne a prince whose native seat was at a safer distance from venice and greece boniface had to be content with the title of king of Saloniki, and such territory in macedonia and greece as he could wrest from and hold against the greeks among the noble dames whom boniface found in the bucolian palace were agnes the widow of andronicus and daughter of louis of france and maria the widow of isaac it is the last appearance in the chronicles of the unfortunate daughter of king louis we must assume that she spent the rest of her life in quiet attachment to the latin court the hungarian princess maria was destined to enter once more the field of royal ambitions she had not yet reached her thirtieth year and her beauty won the heart possibly an alliance with her supported the policy of the ambitious marquis he married maria in constantinople and started with his queen for thessalonica the seat of the new kingdom how at the outset he nearly forfeited it by a civil war with baldwin must be read elsewhere the quarrel was adjusted, and they settled in Thessalonica. And at their court in that city there presently appeared the ex-emperor Alexis, with his wife and daughter, soliciting peace and friendship. Alexis had now concluded that the recovery of the Byzantine Empire was impossible, and he was prepared to submit. He was compelled to lay aside such ensigns of royalty as he still wore and a pleasant residence was afforded him and his family in thessalonica Nicetas makes the singular statement followed at a later date by ephraim that boniface sent alexis and euphrosyne quote, across the sea to the prince of germany end quote. it is clear that this is incorrect they lived for some months at thessalonica and it is one of the few traits we have of maria's character that she received with kindly hospitality the man who had deposed and blinded her husband but the tranquil life of a retired monarch did not suit alexis and we have already seen that his base character was devoid of gratitude he was detected in an intrigue with the citizens of thessalonica and euphrosyne and eudokia had to accompany him once more in his wandering the next page in their career is singularly adventurous but scantily preserved as they wandered over the greek province they met leo Skouros, a peloponnesian noble who had been governor under the byzantine empire of a part of greece he clung to his little power in the chaos which followed the fall of constantinople and alexis decided to join him the troops of boniface were steadily restricting his range and, shortly after the alliance with him of the imperial family, his life was little better than that of a brigand. He lived in the decaying old citadel of Corinth, and marched out periodically at the head of his men to forage and to harass the Latin troops. In this quaint home, the imperial family found shelter for a few further months, and Eudokia married Scurus, it was the fourth romantic marriage of that adventurous princess and was destined to be as unfortunate as its predecessors in her early girlhood she had been sent while still immature to wed the king of servia he had adopted the robe of the monk soon afterwards and his son and successor a fiery brutal youth had claimed the pretty young bride of his father and married her After some years she had, on a charge of misconduct, been thrust out of the Servian capital, her sole garment a narrow strip of cloth around her loins, and had had to await, in the castle of a sympathetic noble, the arrival of clothes and a litter from her father. Then, as we saw, she married the already married Mertziflis, and shared his adventures for a few months now she found herself the wife of an outlaw living in the rude and dilapidated chambers of the old acropolis but Skurus was shortly afterwards captured by the troops of boniface and we lose sight of the unfortunate eudokia she was probably still in her early twenties yet the widow of two kings an emperor and an adventurer such was life in medieval byzantium alexis and euphrosyne took to ship when Scourus was defeated and sailed for aetolia and epirus on the eastern coast of the adriatic where a certain michael a natural son of the emperor's uncle constantine had set up a sovereignty over the rude mountaineers and few towns of that isolated region on the voyage the ship was captured by lombard pirates But Alexis and Euphrosyne were ransomed by their nephew, and at length reached Arta, the chief town of his dominion. The Byzantine world was at the time full of small rulers and would-be rulers. The leading crusaders had received their various slices of the dismembered empire, and here and there some fugitive Byzantine noble, especially if he were connected with the imperial house, had set up a small throne and defended it against the latins in this way michael the illegitimate son of constantine angelus had fled from the captured city to epirus married a native lady of wealth and constituted himself despot of the whole region in his chief town arta euphrosyne tranquilly passed her last year or two of life Her restless husband still thirsted for power, and when he found his nephew was not at all disposed to put on his head once more the crown which he demanded, he took to ship again and sailed for the lands of the Turk in Asia Minor. Euphrosyne did not accompany him. She died at Arta, either just before or soon after his departure. Ten years' experience of imperial life had sated her ambition the ex-empress maria now queen of saloniki continued for many years to enjoy the restricted power and state which she had won by her marriage but they were years of anxiety and care two years after her settlement in thessalonica the greeks rebelled and in an alliance with the bulgarians spread fire and sword over the province and pinned maria in the citadel of her capital In that rebellion, the Latin Emperor Baldwin was captured, and his brother and successor, Henry of Flanders, occupied the throne. Some years later, Boniface was killed in his struggle against the Bulgarians, and Maria became regent for her infant son Demetrius. It is the last glance we have in the chronicles of the beautiful Margaret of Hungary, who, as the Empress Maria, had come to spend so extraordinary a youth. In the Byzantine capital. There remained one other imperial daughter of Euphrosyne, Anna, who had married the able and ambitious noble Theodore Lascaris. When Marzopheles had abandoned Constantinople, Theodore had a momentary ambition to collect the scattered troops and make a struggle for the throne. He found that the attempt would be futile, and, with his wife and three daughters, joined the throng of noble families at the quays who were flying from the doomed city and the barbarous troops of the west they reached nicaea but the city concerned about its future refused to admit him he persuaded the citizens however to receive his wife and daughters and departed to seek allies among the persians in a short time he had an army powerful enough to take nicaea and he established himself as governor in the name of alexis when in the year twelve o six the latins were diverted for a moment by the trouble in greece theodore was crowned by the citizens and euphrosyne's second daughter anna attained the dignity of empress disappointed in epirus her father alexis had now as we saw deserted the little kingdom of his nephew and sailed for asia minor In earlier years he had befriended the Turkish sultan of Iconium, and he now proposed to ask the hospitality of the sultan and intrigue for the crown of his son-in-law. The Turk received him, with great cordiality, and wrote to inform the Emperor Theodore that his father-in-law, in whose name he was presumed to hold power, had arrived in Asia. We must not too hastily admire the gratitude of the Turk, he had regarded with some concern the establishment of Theodore's empire at Nicaea and welcomed a pretext to dispute it. but in the war which followed, the Sultan was defeated, and the active career of Alexis came to a close. He was treated with respect, but his son-in-law prudently confined him in a monastery under his own eyes at Nicaea, and the arch intriguer ended his days in the monotonous chant. Of psalms and prayers his daughter anna died soon afterwards the last of the group of imperial women who had struggled for power and wealth while the great empire tottered to its fall we shall find that terrible catastrophe made no deep impression on the men and women who filled the less opulent court at nicaea or on those who half a century later returned to the lamentable ruin from which they at length dislodged the western knights end of section twenty two